We are growing church and it is wonderful to have you all here. If you're here for the first time or you are a regular participant in our life together here or online, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. We don't take it for granted at all and we are glad that you're here and we pray that God will speak to you as we now turn to his word. Would you please, if you have a Bible and you will need a Bible, so if you don't have one, um, feel free to steal one from the person beside you. That's not a real instruction. But if you have one on your phone or you'll need access to one, we're going to read Matthew chapter 5 from verses 1 through to 12 together. I read from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. This is the third week that we have been journeying through the Sermon on the Mount, and we will be lingering in these texts for quite some time. We're still really setting out some of the ideas and the concepts and the the, the kind of structural teaching of this uh, series of chapters in the Bible, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. And this morning I want to talk to you about the gospel of the kingdom about the gospel of righteousness, about what it sits at the center of these three chapters of teaching that can hold us together and a call that lifts our eyes away from an internalized, pietistic understanding of Christianity. Our church is part of evangelical tradition, and if we're not careful in evangelicalism, we tell people that they pray a prayer, sign a a line on a a prayer card, and nothing in their lives will ever need to change. That's not quite what the Bible says about following Jesus. And at the center of this sermon, not my sermon, but Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, there is a call to a better life, a life that can bring hope, a life that can bring peace, a life that is stable in the midst of storms, that is strong in the midst of uncertainty, that has a focus in the midst of the fog, a life that can give us meaning and significance beyond our circumstances 
if we will allow it to do so. When we began this series a few weeks ago, I described this section of the Bible as the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever lived. And I believe that to be true. But in what sense is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7, a sermon? In what sense is it preaching? And why does it matter to you or to me? Well, To help us understand that and to get to the heart of what I want to say to you this morning, I need to ask a question that many Christians ask very often and I think rather unhelpfully give some odd answers. What is the difference between preaching and teaching? Have you ever heard somebody talking about that? And they may have listened to a teacher who is trying to preach but is a bit flat. And there'll be a conversation about that goes something like this. You're maybe not a preacher, but you're a really good teacher. The inference being that teaching somehow demands less inspiration, that it can be less alluring, less inspiring, less captivating. Or you'll hear somebody preaching, and what they do is string together a series of stories. And somebody might say, they're a great preacher, but they're not a great teacher. In other words, Preaching is all about this kind of inspirational moment. What if that is not a helpful delineation or difference? And what if at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, at the heart of Matthew's gospel, Matthew has something different to say to us about preaching and teaching, and that could help us to understand why the Sermon on the Mount is both preaching and teaching and inspiring and full of content and life-transforming. To help you understand that, I need you to do a bit of a journey with me in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And I'd like you, first of all, to read the context in which this um, series of teaching is placed. I'm not sure that Jesus taught all of these things in this order as Matthew sets them out. I'm sure he taught all of these things, and I'm sure he taught them in different contexts. But Matthew is both an editor and a recorder. So he puts together what he wants Jesus to be recorded as saying in this first set of teaching like a very intentional redactor or editor. A couple of weeks ago, I told you, Matthew is presenting Jesus as a new Moses. And he's presenting this teaching as the new Torah. Not new as in obliterating the old law, but encompassing it, enfleshing it, living it out, showing people what true faithfulness really looks like. The context of all of that is set in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness amongst the people. There you have in verse 23, preaching and teaching welded together. The two words that are used there um, that are translations of Greek words are saying that there is a preaching and teaching aspect to what Jesus is doing here. Jump forward in your Bibles for a moment to Matthew chapter 9, please. This is before the next set of teaching that Matthew has Jesus bringing. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, the teaching is in chapter 10. But in chapter 9, verse 35, we read read this. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming or preaching the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. It's almost exactly the same Words as are recorded in Matthew chapter 4. Now go to Matthew chapter 11. Verse 1. 
Now, when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, he went on from there to teach and proclaim or teach and preach his message in their cities. Three times in three significant sections of Matthew, Jesus is introduced as both preaching and teaching. The 1920s commentator, 1960s commentator, C.H. Dodd, suggests that there's a difference between preaching and teaching. He says that um, teaching is community instruction. Preaching is the missionary proclamation of who Jesus is and what he's called us to do and be. I'm not sure that that is true. Because in Matthew's gospel, again and again, Matthew connects preaching and teaching. And in the Sermon on the Mount in particular, he places it at the center of what it means to live well. He has in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explaining what the law is and how we live it. Explaining morality, explaining choices, explaining ethics, explaining how to prioritize our personal lives, how to get our relationships right, how to deal with broken pasts, how to make sure that forgiveness flows from us, not ways in which we can avoid being defined by our culture, how to sit well in the midst of a pagan culture or an exilic culture. When you're surrounded by people who don't know and follow Christ, what shapes you? What helps us to live well? Matthew again and again draws those that are listening to him, probably from Antioch. Matthew almost certainly wrote his gospel for believers in Antioch around about 85 or 90 AD. And he had in his mind these people as he told this story. And he wanted them to be fashioned so that they might live in faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And it looks like something. That's key. Following Jesus looks like something. When you go to work tomorrow morning or when you're caring for a relative or when you're getting your kids up for school or you're visiting friends, you're sitting at a desk or working in a hospital or working in a school, you're studying theology, you're at university doing engineering, you're trying to work out what your life looks like, you're making your choices. Following Jesus is not some esoteric, um, um, detached reality that exists behind you. It looks like your moral choices tomorrow. It looks like how you treat your wife or your husband if you're married. It looks like how you prepare for marriage if you're engaged. It looks like the choices that you make around your own sexual ethics. Too much of the teaching in the church is detached from the lives that we live. The life you live tomorrow can be shaped by what you hear from the Sermon on the Mount. It can give you definition. It can give you meaning, it can give you purpose, it can give you significance, but more than that, it can give you a benchmark. Do you want to know how you're doing as a follower of Jesus? Test yourself against the Sermon on the Mount. Do you want to explore your religious life? Test yourself against the Sermon on the Mount. You might be uncomfortable with the answers, as might I, but at least you can be honest and recognize that you and I both need God's grace in ways that are deeper than we could ever express. Matthew wants the people that are listening to these words to understand Jesus' teaching and to understand that at the center of it sits an ethical framework 
Follow me for a moment as we look at some of the verses from Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. He began to speak and he taught them. Look at verse 19 of chapter 5. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jump to the end of the sermon, that's chapter 7, verse 29, or verse 28. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Jump forward to the middle of Matthew's gospel, chapter 15, for a moment. Verse 9. Jesus is challenging the religious teaching of the leaders of Judaism at the time because he wants them to understand that they're teaching one thing and living another thing and the disconnect is a gap of credibility. The same is true today. Chapter 15, verse 8, from verse 7 on, you hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You could read other passages, 22.16 or 26.55, but we don't have the time. Jesus' teaching by Matthew is connected with the people that are listening. That's why in chapter 5, verse 2, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and chapter 7, verse 29, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there are like two bookend statements. He taught and they heard. He taught and they were listening. I have said this to you that are part of this fellowship before, not in an arrogant or presumptuous way. But I want to gently remind you of something. Often churches can prize themselves on how good the preaching is. We've heard some of the greatest preaching since the Second World War. We've got the greatest preachers in our church. They're brilliant preachers. They're accountable for their preaching. You're accountable for what you do with it. You will stand before Almighty God and give account for every choice that you have ever made and every sermon that you have ignored. I don't mean that in a threatening or a frightening way. I mean it in a serious way. You may not like me for that, but my job as the lead pastor of this church is to remind you that all of us, including me, will stand before Almighty God and invite you and encourage you to live well. A Christianity that is detached from ethics and moral choices is weak. It has nothing to say to society and it is not the Christian faith that is described in the New Testament. Every time except once in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is recorded as preaching or teaching, he is recorded as preaching or teaching to his followers. Every time. There's one example of him preaching and teaching concerning the Gentiles. And that's in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. But even there, he's instructing his disciples to go and teach them. Every example of preaching and teaching is Jesus telling the people of God how to live. And Matthew does something which I think is really important. He connects preaching with gospel and with kingdom. To help you understand what I mean by that, I want you to look at just two verses with me. Chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 17. After his temptation, 
Jesus has begun his public ministry. And here's what we read. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jump forward to chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus is instructing his disciples, the 12, and how they are to live and teach. And he says, as you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Do you see the connection? What he's teaching and what the Sermon on the Mount is about is good news, the kingdom of God, and a phrase that he uses again and again, which is righteousness. Matthew wants his listeners to understand that there's a way of living for Jesus that brings life to them and hope to the world. And this is rooted in the good news. The Greek word is eangelion. It sounds like a spaghetti, doesn't it? This is rooted in the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. And that gospel, that kingdom good news, looks like something. Matthew wants his listeners to understand that good news is centered, is oriented around, is rooted in the earthly Jesus and his teaching. The German theologian, a German theologian, I'm commenting on this about 10 or 11 years ago, says this, it is theologically decisive for Matthew that all church preaching is orientated toward the earthly Jesus and has no content other than his words and deeds. I'm not sure I'd go as far as that, but I think the sentiment is right, and that is this. If you want to know what a Christian life looks like, you will see it in the faithful living of Jesus Christ. And if you want to know what ethics looks like, he gives you the answer. If you want to know how to decipher between right and wrong, he gives you the answer. If you want to know what compassion looks like, he is compassion. If you want to work out how you respond in certain circumstances, you and I become familiar with the life of Jesus. And as we become familiar with the life of Jesus, our lives are changed. At the center of the Sermon on the Mount is this idea that an ethical, better life is possible for all people following God, and it is rooted in the gospel of the kingdom. It has a clear, discernible sharpness in Matthew's gospel. Matthew uses the word teach at the beginning and the end of his gospel, as, as I've already said. But the Sermon on the Mount, get this. This is why I encouraged you two weeks ago to learn it by heart. And some of you looked at me with saucer-like eyes. If you want to know what the gospel of Matthew is, read and understand and get your heart into the Sermon on the Mount. It is Matthew's summary of the gospel of the kingdom. People say to me, the Bible's so confusing, it's so big. I can't read it all. I'll never get to understand it all. Read these three chapters. Let them penetrate your heart and soul and discover that the kingdom of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is not only a future reality, but it has power today to shape how you handle disappointment to shape how you handle failure, to shape how you respond to mistakes, how you think about your relationships, your ethics. This is a, a manual for good living. 
for living in a way that means that there is purpose in it. There's a promise contained within this sermon that gives us great life. And as we begin next week to unpack the Beatitudes, imagine that the Beatitudes themselves have a bookmark or a bookend on either side. In chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And look at the end of it, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The basileia, the, the, the kingdom, the, the way of living that changes us, bookmarks and holds together this summary at the beginning of the gospel, but it, of the Sermon on the Mount. It also holds together the Sermon on the Mount, and it holds us together. When our lives are falling apart, when we don't know what to do, this holds us together. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. As Jesus is teaching them how to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This idea of God's kingdom is rooted in chapter 6 verse 10. Chapter 5 verse 3 and verse 10. Verse 19 and verse 20. The end of chapter 6. The great summary verse. Seek first the And everything else will be added unto you. Chapter 7, verse 21, as Jesus sets out what it is to live well, he uses a phrase around the kingdom of God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. This idea sits at the heart of this gospel. But here's the thing, something that I think is remarkably important. And look at me for a moment so that I can try and explain this. as best I can, imagine that the Sermon on the Mount is a piece of literature in its own right. Now, it isn't, and it's bad advice to tell you to do that, but I want you for a moment to imagine that this is a a piece of literature in its own right, and you spread every single idea or argument of it along a seesaw as a block. The middle of that seesaw, the very center grammatically, exegetically, and theologically, is the section that runs from Matthew chapter 6, verse 4, through to Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, or literally, actually, more, actually, more accurately, verses 7 to 11, which is the Lord's Prayer. And if you take that and go to the center of it. There's one phrase that sits like the fulcrum of the seesaw at the center of that. And it is, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's verse 10. The way it's written in Greek, if you go to the very pinnacle of the seesaw, that's the base. If you go to the very pinnacle of the fulcrum, The one word, actually it's two words because of the numbers of words, that sit at the pinnacle of the seesaw that hold everything in the Sermon on the Mount together. The two words are Father. Everything about your Christian life, 
everything about your ethics, everything about your moral choices, everything about what you discern is right or wrong, everything predicates and rests on whether you know him as a father or a tyrant. It is the center of ethical living. It is the center of right choices. It's the center of hope. It's the center of grace. It's the center of mercy. It's the center of forgiveness. It all hangs on this. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The base. We are here to demonstrate something. The evangelical idea that you sign a declaration card and therefore you are in the kingdom has nothing to do with the New Testament. There is not a single example of that kind of assessment of whether or not people are in the kingdom. That decision is vital. What you do with it evidences whether or not you have understood it and you take it seriously. A life well lived. Kindness, generosity, forgiveness. And these ideas in the Sermon on the Mount are not loose ideas. They're not flaky ideas. They're not nebulous ideas. Do you know what we love to do as Christians? Theorize everything. Let's have a discussion about grace. No, let's show grace. Hello? Let's have a discussion about forgiveness. No, let's forgive some people. Let's have a dialogue about whether or not we should tithe. No. Let's just give. Let's define a healthy church. Have a discussion about what a healthy congregation is. And by the way, I'm an academic. I love, I love talking. I didn't kiss the Blarney Stone. I swallowed it. <laughs> but there is a point at which it is right and proper For somebody to say to a congregation, stop talking about this and do it. Stop talking about loving Jesus when you hate your neighbor. Stop talking about being kind when you're holding judgment in your heart. Stop talking about struggling with sin but not asking God to help you. Stop blaming everything else and everyone else for everything else that's going on in your life and start recognizing that God has the power to give us a better life. And it is rooted in our Father. In chapter 5, verse 20, in chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus uses the phrase about righteousness and reminds us that we are called to do it. The kingdom of God is deeply tied to righteousness, not our own effort, but God's righteousness living in us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said about the Sermon on the Mount, listen to this. The Sermon on the Mount does not presuppose the gospel of the kingdom. It is the gospel of the kingdom. In chapter 5, it announces God's radical demands. In chapter 6, it describes the interior life of faith without which nothing can work. And in chapter 7, it tells us that we can renounce the world and start living in love. It gives us a better way of living. When Augustine first used the phrase Sermon on the Mount in his work, oh, 1650, 1660 years ago, it was the first time the phrase had been used. It's become known as that. But when you read some of the teaching of the Reformers, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, which Calvin described as the Brevis Summa Doctrina Christi, or in other words, the brief summary of the doctrine of Christ, 
Something happens in the, and I am reformed in my theology. Something happens in Reformation theology to the Sermon on the Mount, which is both inexplicable and inexcusable. It becomes theorized. It becomes a doctrine to learn rather than a lifestyle to live. It was never written like that. It wasn't preached like that. And we shouldn't hear it like that. These three chapters tell us how to live. How to grapple with the biggest challenges in our lives. Jesus' half-brother, James, wrote the later epistle of James. And here's what he says. Be doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed by their doing. Sounds a bit like Jesus in chapter 4, verse 17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I've shown you many times before, but biblical repentance is the act of stopping, turning, and walking back in the direction that God has called you to walk in. It isn't just stopping. It isn't remorse. It isn't regret. It isn't feeling guilty. None of those sum up repentance. There are people sitting in this room, and there are people that I have pastored over the years who are living in remorse and regret, and they are still chained. Because they have not learned that repentance involves relying on the power of God to live differently. To walk in a different direction. Nobody listening online or in the context of this room who is a follower of Jesus is confined to living in regret. It's a doctrine that can destroy us. It can rob us of hope and joy and purpose and meaning and significance. And so many Christians live with regret. Do you know why? Because they haven't realized that there's a better life possible, but it's only possible through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. But that he is here. Could it be that God is here today on the 16th of February to break a chain in your thinking? To lift you out of lazy hedonism. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, everything. The only thing that matters to me is being healthy. The Sermon on the Mount reprioritizes our thinking. It recategorizes our understanding of what is vital and what isn't. And it does so by placing God at the very center of it. This life is possible. But... It is not possible independent of relationships and things and people. And it is not possible in individualism. The great blight of the 21st century church in Western Europe is the idea that our spirituality can exist here and our reading of the Bible can exist here. It doesn't make sense. There is nowhere from Genesis to Revelation... I wish I had time to go into this more fully with you. There is nowhere where spirituality is described in a vacuum. I don't want to disappoint you. But the Bible is not an extended version of every day with Jesus. <laughs> I thought that was quite funny, but you're all taking it very seriously. <laughs> we can approach the Bible in a way that says, Lord, give me something for today. Oh no, not that. 
Worse still, we approach our ethical, moral, and private choices as if they've got nothing to do with our spirituality. And we find a way of justifying our behavior. Well, if they'd done it in you, you wouldn't forgive them. And we separate out spiritual life from the real choices that we make. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't let you do that. Every choice you and I make is an ethical choice. Whether you sign your tax return and tell the truth, or you dodge it, whether you forgive somebody or not, whether you believe somebody or not, whether you gossip or not, the way you talk about other people when nobody else is looking, the way you think and behave, the way you relate, the way you do life and family, the way you do sexuality, the way you do marriage, the way you do grieving, the way you do money, the way you do words, the way you do forgiveness, the way you do resentment, the way you do handling criticism, the way you do um, courting, the way you do engagement, the way you do preparation for marriage, the way you do preparing for death, the way you do bringing up children, the way you handle disappointment, the way you approach suffering, the way you sit at your desk and work, the way you handle your colleagues, the way you walk down the street. Everything we do has an ethical significance. And it is rooted if it is going to be liberating and let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are businesswomen and businessmen that worship in this church every day. And you know why I delight in being a pastor? Well, there are lots of reasons. You are some of those reasons. Ah, uh, yes, amen. <laughs> I get to influence your choices. And I unapologetically delight in that. I don't get to make your choices for you, however. You can listen to teaching. You can listen to preaching. You can never miss a meeting. And you can go away and live a life that has absolutely nothing to do with the gospel. Or you and I can listen together to God's word and be changed by it. Recently, I had a conversation with a person in our congregation who shall remain nameless. Just a throwaway conversation on the way out the door. And I said, how are you doing? And they said, oh, I'm not doing too bad. They said, the company that I'm involved in, I think he was being kind. I think he owns the company. Um, is developing the process for delivering the pig vax, the vaccine for swine flu in China. And we're the only people that are doing it in the world. And I was like, okay, I need to get my head around that a bit. That sounds exciting. Next phrase. And the money that that makes the company we're using to try and eradicate Ebola. Yeah. Oh, for goodness sake. And I listened, and I thought to myself as they went away, and I'm pastoring them. <laughs> I've had people talk to me about the way they're trying to manage the health service, the way they're trying to run businesses, the way they're trying to educate children, the way they're trying to impact um, our uh, government, the way they're, uh, a whole range of things, not just big things, by the way, little things, unspoken things. You know, pastor, could you pray for me? I'm really trying to work out how to speak the truth to my granddaughter. I try to read the Bible to her every night. Her mom and dad aren't Christians, but I'm, I'm trying really hard. I don't want to offend them, but I want that wee girl to know she's loved. What a joy. Pastor, could you help me? I'm trying, we're thinking about getting married and we want to do it the right way. 
Imagine being invited to walk with people as they build foundations for the rest of their lives. Pastor, could you come and sit with us for a while? Somebody we love has died. Imagine the joy of it. The privilege of the responsibility, but at all, at the heart of it all, sits this call to help people to live well. Do not domesticate the Sermon on the Mount. The church in Germany in the Second World War did that. Adolf von Harnack and Wilhelm Hermann and others developed a theology that justified genocide. Theologians and church leaders are doing it in the United States of America today. Because their evangelicalism is more important than their faithfulness to Christ. I will defend Donald Trump rather than criticize what he is doing when children are dying at borders. Christians in Northern Ireland have done it for years. We will theologize the Sermon on the Mount and we will ignore the fact that it calls us to forgive. To see past our prejudices and live better lives. Do not theologize this text. Don't domesticate it. Don't turn it into a sanctified blessing of everything you already believe. Unless the Sermon on the Mount makes us profoundly uncomfortable with ourselves, we haven't read it properly. Unless it gets under our skin, challenges our politics, it challenges my politics, challenges our morals, challenges our ethics, then there's something about it that we have missed. Because this is a call to live, to practice, to choose Christ, to put him first, not some kind of internalized grace. So I invite you to think about what this would look like in Northern Ireland, or in Edinburgh, or in um, Hampshire, in Hereford, Hartford, and Hampshire, hurricanes hardly happen. Somebody will tell you where that comes from, Ellie, if you don't already know. Matthew, who sees the defects and the weaknesses of his community, inserts a new ethos through the Sermon on the Mount for those who are waiting for the reign of God and demands that it becomes an inalienable and integral part of his theology. Jesus calls for a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. He proclaims a morality made possible through God's boundless mercy, grounded in trusting his Father, transcending legal descriptions that is directed to and enabled not by hard work, but by the love of God. He sets out a community that reaches for the love of one another, out toward the love of neighbors, and eventually to the love of even our enemies. In three short chapters, he gives us a righteousness that is both required and given by God. A way of living on a better plane, a way of thinking in a better way. He calls all people who follow Christ to lives of piety and compassion and grace. He teaches us about reconciliation and forgiveness, about mercy, about faithfulness. 
We don't put this into practice by learning it by heart or by theologizing. We put it into practice by living it. And how is it all made possible? I read the Sermon on the Mount. I've read it once a month for 20 years. And every time I read it, I am both undone by it and remade by it. I am done by it because it describes a life that I am not living. I am remade by it because it describes a life that is possible. And it describes human followers of Jesus in more beautiful terms than any self-help book ever written will describe. It paints a picture of living beyond fear. Living beyond failure. And living beyond faithlessness. And it invites you and me into it. And it is all made possible by the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who knew no sin? Yet became sin for you and me. that you and I might be made the righteousness of God. Nothing that you have done is stronger than the power of the cross. No past mistakes. No patterned behavior. No habits. No lifestyles. Nothing. Nothing is stronger than the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And he is here right now by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring comfort, life, and a better way of living to all who will ask him.